Pray it for your family. Pray it for your parish. Pray it for your city. Pray it for this diocese, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all of us every day. Because if we don't pray for it, nothing's going to happen. It won't. You get what you ask for. If you don't ask for it, you don't get it. <laughs> it's not rocket science. What do we hear in the gospel? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. But if you don't ask or seek or knock, then you will continue to live a life with flat tires. If you want to do that, it's your choice. But I'm here. I've been sent here, I believe, to light a fire under the... And how I wish it were already a blazing. <laughs> you're you're going to make me cry. <laughs> you know, it's, this is amazing. Like, really, this is, really is amazing. And I'm kind of blown away about the turnout today. You know, I wasn't expecting this, but you know how beautiful it is to see all of you um, here um, today. I mean, I wish I really had time. I wish I had time to find out from you individually why you wanted to come today. It'd be an interesting, um, that'd be interesting for me to hear. Because um, it would tell me a lot. I mean, it would, it would tell me uh, quite a bit about um, what you're thinking and what you're desiring um, for yourselves personally, but also um, in this diocese um, today. But, you know, as we begin this morning, we do place ourselves consciously in the presence of the Lord. And it has to be something conscious. We just can't assume because I'm sitting here, I'm in the presence of God. Yes, we are. But if we consciously place ourselves in the presence of God, then there's a connection. It's not some, you know, but it's, it's, a, real, it's a real connection. And so this morning, as we begin, we ask the Lord to renew us. All of us need renewed, right? Yes, Bishop, we do. Yes. <laughs> okay. You're going to catch on, okay. All right, I'm going to pull it out of you sooner or later. We also want to ask the Lord to draw us deeper into his love and mercy. We all need his love and mercy, don't we? Yes, we do. <laughs> we also want to ask the Lord... to show us, each of us, um, how he wants to help us live our true identity as disciples of Jesus. We ask the Lord to help us to see the areas of our hearts, to, to, to reveal those to us that lead us to living a false self. We all do it at times. In other words, the ways in which we are not living as the Lord desires us and for us. You know, we should never be afraid. We should never be afraid to ask the Lord to show us where in our lives that we need a deeper conversion to Christ. We should be asking that question daily. Lord, where do I, where do you, 
see in my own heart that it needs to be more deeply converted to Jesus. It's important. If we never ask the question, if we never seek the answer, then we will never be drawn deeper into Christ's love for us. It's not rocket science. It's real. We, and then we will continue to live a relationship with, you know, when, when we do that, we, um, we'll, if, if we don't ask, we will continue to live a relationship with the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, only on the surface, on the surface, and never will live our true identity. We will only live an identity which we ourselves have created. That's what will happen. We have, we've created for ourselves. This is truly not what God's desire is for us. So as we begin, let us ask the Holy Spirit to make our hearts like sponges today. Supple and pliable. Soft and receptive able to soak in during these three hours all that the Lord desires for us. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this day with deep and loving gratitude in our hearts. You have called us here, each in our own way. In your mind, in your heart, there's no coincidence. But you have led each person here today for a reason. The reasons they may not know, but we do know it has been you that has drawn them to this place today. So Lord, we ask you to open our hearts to receive all that you desire to give to us. Truly make our hearts receptibles to your love, to your mercy, perhaps even to the challenges that you will place before us this day, to the words that are spoken. Open our hearts to those as well so that we can look at them in the light of your love and mercy and respond in a new way, seeking you in a new way, with a deeper desire, with a greater desire for all that you want to give to us. We give you thanks, Lord, for your son, Jesus, who is the Lord of our lives, who came to lead us to you in eternal life, not just after we die, but here presently in this time, in this place, in this world. We thank you for all that you give to us. Open our hearts to you. Mother Mary, we come before you this day as well, knowing that your role is to lead us to the heart of Jesus, even to your immaculate heart. Help break down the resistance in our hearts to go where you lead us, to where his heart takes us, so that we might truly come to a new awareness of our true identity, and not only that, our mission in the heart of your son, Jesus. So we make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. So good morning once again. Good morning. How many of us think the spiritual life of the church is in good shape. <laughs> it is. It's not in perfect shape. But it's in... You know how I know that? It's in good shape? 
because you're here. <laughs> right? That's true. Is it what we want it to be? Absolutely not. You know? And it will never be what we want it to be on this side of eternity. We have to realize that. But, but just because that's the reality doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying and moving forward and pushing people and inviting people and whatever, whatever it takes, you know? And so that's what I want to talk about today. You know, the title of the talk was Encountering Jesus and Growing in Our Catholic Faith. That's the title, okay? But as I look at the church, not just in this diocese, but I've noticed it in this diocese, the numbers of people are not in church on Sunday. That's, that's, a, big, that's a big troubling to me. That's really troubling to me. I've gone around many places in the diocese, and I don't see families with high school kids, junior high kids in, in church. They're not there. That's a bothersome. That bothers me tremendously, you know? It should bother all of you, too. So what are you going to do about it? It's not my job. It's yours. They're your friends. They're your family members, right? Do we care enough about them to want to bring them back? That's the question. And so having said that, part of the reason we, ch we are challenged by doing that is because we're not living our identity. That's it. So what I'm going to talk to, I'm going to look at our true identity today, okay? What, what is it? What does it look like? Because, and, and then what are some of the challenges which keep us from living that identity? There are many. I don't have t the time today to talk through, but I'll share some, what I think are some of the major challenges that keep us from living this identity in Christ. And then I want to talk about, the, the last part is about how our identity, if we're living our true identity, it leads us to mission. How many of you know the mission statement of the diocese? Nobody. Then you're going nowhere. You're not following the mission. That's the problem. We can, it's so easy to live a life of maintenance in the church and in all our parishes, right? Jesus didn't call us to live a life of maintenance. He sent us on mission. So it's up to you to go back to your parishes and take the lead and leading your parishes from maintenance to mission. And then your parishes will be doing what Christ calls them to do. Amen? Amen. Okay, now let's look at our true identity. Let's, I, I want to begin doing that from... Um, I want to pick it up from the first chapter of the book of Genesis. Right? Which Bible is... Which book is... Where is that in the Bible? <laughs> it's the first one, right? Okay we're, okay, we're on the same page now. You have it in your head where we are. So it begins with chapter... I'm going to start with cha first chapter, verse 24. And it reads, Then God said, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth every living kind or every kind of living creature, tame animals, crawling things, every kind of wild animal. And so it happened. God made every kind of wild animal, every kind of tame animal, every kind of thing that crawls on the ground. God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, and over all the wild animals and all the creatures 
that crawl on the ground. God created man in his image. In the divine image, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, saying, be fertile and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion, not domination. Have dominion. It's very different. I don't have time to talk about that today, but maybe another time. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living creatures that move on the, on the earth. God also said, see, I give you every seed-bearing plant all over the earth and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit on it to be your food. And to all the animals of the land, all the birds of the sea, all the living creatures that crawl on the ground, I give all the green plants for food. And so it happened. God looked at everything he had made and he found it very good. Evening came and morning followed the sixth day. And the fast forward, then the seventh day, God rested and told us to do the same. How many of you rest on Sunday? Or do you work and you go shopping and, you know? You know, prior to the fall, Adam and Eve, they were living their true identity. In the Garden of Eden, and when God was creating the world, everything, everything was in perfect harmony. Right? Everything. Adam and Eve had, had everything they ever wanted. The Lord had provided everything for their benefit. Complete fulfillment, right? He provided everything for them. Everything for their benefit. Complete, total fulfillment. Unity was running through every facet of creation. Adam and Eve, they longed for nothing. There was innocence. There was obedience. There was delight and gratitude. There was this deep happiness. There was supernatural virtue. Abundant life. There was a longing for nothing. How many, want to, wanted to return, how many of us want to return to that? <laughs> there was perfect and unconditional love. And I think we have to remember that through all of God's creation, God's love is revealed through all of his creation. And this speaks to the fact that because of his perfect and unconditional love for us, everything that God created was for you and me, for all of us. But, first of all, love has to be received, right? If we go to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, we find these words. God calls man first. So this relationship begins with him, not us. Man may forget his creator or hide far from his face. We do that all the time, hide. He may run after idols and accuse the deity of having abandoned him. We do that all the time. Yet the living and true God tirelessly calls each person to that mysterious encounter known as prayer. In prayer, God's initiative of love 
always comes first. Our own first step is always a response. It's the end of that paragraph from the Catechism. So like Adam and Eve, you and I, we've been created in God's image and likeness. Do you see yourself? Did you get up this morning seeing yourself as created in God's image and likeness? How many of you have done that? The rest of you, then you're not living your identity. That's, that's the first thing. Okay? Because it's from there we, we, we derive our dignity. It's from there the first principle of Catholic social teaching states this. Being in the image of God, the human individual possesses the dignity of a person who is not just something, but someone. He is capable or she is capable of self-knowledge, of self-possession, and of freely giving himself or herself and entering into communion with other persons. And he or she is called by grace to a covenant. Have you thought about your covenant with your creator? Do you think about that? Your covenant with God that began in baptism. Right? A covenant, you entered into a covenant with God when you were baptized, whether you realized it or not. So as all are called by, by grace to a covenant with his creator to offer him a response of faith, and love that no other creature can give. Adam and Eve, by grace, were called into a covenant with their creator God. This is the way it was from the beginning. So in the garden, God's covenantal love and desire was first revealed. You know, God's love is revealed in many ways, right? Right? It's revealed in many ways in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, and we just heard part of it. It's revealed in his word. God said, so it happened. It's revealed in creation. Let us make man. Everything was created for us. It's, it's, his love is revealed in the mission that he gives us. Be fruitful and multiply. Have dominion, not domination. Have dominion. It's revealed in his gifts, right? What did he say? I give you. Go back and read the text. That, you know, after you leave here, go back and read, the, read that first chapter of, uh, and the beginning of the second chapter of the book of Genesis. He's, it's, it's revealed in his gaze, right? God looked at everything. All of you. Everything. He looked at everything and saw that it was good. So Adam and Eve, prior to the fall, they had received this beautiful, beautiful blessing, right? This a blessing of perfection, really. You know? Because the anatomy of God's blessing, we want to look at this in the sense of it's love and delight and gratitude and spiritual consolation and inspiration, supernatural virtue, abundant life, right? But as we know, Adam and Eve, they were tempted by the evil one, right? And how did that happen? Well, the evil one played upon their passions and their human appetites. And dear friends, it all began with a lie because Satan is a great deceiver. He's a great liar, 
but he color coats it. He sugar coats it all. And we are drawn into it. It's, he's filled with half-truths, right? And he sugarcoats everything. He's very manipulative. So he played upon the passions and appetites of Adam and Eve. It began with a lie, a lie about God's word, a lie that cast doubt, cast doubt on God's goodness and trustworthiness. That doubt is still in our hearts today. I hate to tell you that. But I'm sure all of us at some point in time, and maybe even now, continue to doubt God in some ways. The evil one convinced Adam and Eve that God was not true to his promises. He, so therefore, he could not be trusted. The evil one cast God as a liar. Think about that. The evil one casted God as a liar. That this blessing was not really meant for Adam and Eve. It's a hoax, right? If they would only give in to the temptation, they would find out and discover their true identity. Ah, the subtle temptations of the evil one. He's still alive and well and working in our lives every single day. So now that this distrust in God was led to an act of disobedience, because that's what distrust does. You know, your kids don't trust you, so they disobey you, right? But it comes from a distrust and, you know, that you know what's best for them, you know? And this is from the Catechism. This is what man's first sin consisted of. This distrust that led to a disobedience. And all subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and the lack of trust in His goodness. So this disobedience created a wound in the hearts of all of us. What's the anatomy of a wound? You know, we talked about anatomy of a blessing would be just love, What's the anatomy of the corresponding anatomy of a wound? What's well, unlove? If you feel unloved, it's because you're not turning to the Lord. Anatomy of a God's blessing is delight. What's the anatomy of the wound corresponding to that? It's pain. Anatomy of a blessing is gratitude. The corresponding of the wound is fear. Anatomy of, of God's blessing is spiritual consolation. That of the wound is spiritual desolation. God's blessing is about inspiration. The wound is about temptation. Spiritual virtue is part of the blessing. The wound part is sin. God's blessing leads to abundant life. In the anatomy of a wound, it leads to death. So as we know... Adam and Eve were tempted by the evil one who played upon their passions. Right? And so in, the, in that first sin, man preferred himself Um, 
in that first sin, Adam and Eve preferred themselves over God. And by that very act, rejected God. In other words, man chose himself over and against God, and therefore over and against his or her own good. Man, Adam and Eve, was destined to be fully divinized, right? Made divine by God in glory. But they threw it all away because they wanted to be like God. But they wanted to be like God without God. So Adam and Eve wanted to be on his, her, his or her own, just like we do. I mean, are we not too like that sometimes? Want to be on our own? Oh, I can manage my life by myself. We do it without thinking about it. And so God is not a part of that, right? Jesus didn't say, I came to give, I, I didn't, he didn't say, I came into the world to, to give you life. You know, he said, I came to give you life in abundance. He didn't say, I came into the world so you could manage your own life. That's not in the Bible, right? That's not in the gospel. But that's how we live our lives, right? You try to manage it yourself. And so if that's happening, we're not living our identity. We're not. It's the identity that you created for yourself, not the identity that God gave you when he created you. And so Adam and Eve, once they gave into the evil one's enticement, the great wound opened up for all of us, known as original sin. And after that first sin, the wound is virtually inundated by sin. The world is virtually inundated by sin. So in the end, it was all about trust. Or more, more precisely, it was all about distrust. And to one degree or another, like Adam and Eve, we all have trust problems when it comes to God. Whether we want to acknowledge that or own up to it or not. We too tend to distrust Him. All of us. Like Adam and Eve, we too try to hide from God. Right? Especially when our sin weighs us down. You know, we just carry them. We're too afraid to go to confession, right? When was the last time you went to confession? Just a thought for, I'm going to throw out these little pieces of thinking that you need to think about. You know, if we desire this deep relationship with God, confession is an important, integral part of that. And if we're not using the sacrament of confession, that's in a whole other talk for down the road. Um, but, you know, we're not, we're not, you know, we'll never be drawn into this deep life that the Lord wants to us because we're afraid. Our sins have kept keep us in fear. And fear and faith are not compatible. They're, they're not. It's like all water and oil. They don't mix. Okay? Make sense? So Adam and Eve, they became afraid of, of the God of whom they had conceived a distorted image. And what has become distorted about their image of God? What was distorted about that? What was distorted was God's goodness. They no longer believed in God's goodness. They no longer believed in goodness. We tend to doubt, doubt God's goodness as well. And we don't fully, when, when we don't fully believe that God is good, then we don't fully trust him. Simple as that. And that's a big problem. Why? Because all sin, all sin, all sin involves a lack of trust in God's goodness and love. My dear friends, all sin. If you, want a, if you want a clear, concise definition of sin, it's this. 
all sin is a rejection of God's love. Simple. So instead of an experience of love and delight and gratitude and spiritual consolation, inspiration, supernatural virtue, and abundant life, we find ourselves experiencing this unlove and pain and fear, spiritual desolation, temptation, sin, and death. Such became the loss of our original identity. So we see in this Genesis story the result of refusing God's love. That's what it is. Again, all sin is a rejection of God's love. So what came from that? Shame, self-recrimination, hiding away from God, refusing to admit sin, blame, spiritual combat, pain, husband-wife, relationship to master-slave relationship, toil and death entered into the human experience. How do we know that? Well, here's the text from the book of Genesis. This one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one has been taken. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and the two of them become one body. And then we go on further. The man and his wife were both naked, yet they felt no shame. This was before the fall. This was the original spirituality. Then the temptation The snake said to the woman, You certainly will not die. God knows well that when you eat of of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like gods who know good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes, so it's, it's, it's touching on her passions and appetites. And the tree was desirable, desirable, right, for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some of it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig trees together and made loincloths for themselves. Now they felt shame. Right? When they heard the sound of the Lord God walking about in the garden at the breezy time of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees. So now he's in hiding, right? Among the trees of the garden. The Lord God then called to the man and asked him, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid. Now there's fear has entered into the world, right? Because I was naked, so I hid. Fear, shame, hiding. Fallen human nature. Then God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? I love this story. Have you eaten from the tree of which I had forbidden you to eat? The man replied, well, the woman, the woman who put you you here with me. She's the one. She gave me the fruit of the tree, so I ate it. Then the Lord asked the woman, what is this you have done? The woman answered, the snake tricked me. So I ate it. So now this blame game starts, right? How often do you blame someone else for your actions, right? You see what's happening here? Then the Lord said to the snake, he's addressing all the critters, 
<laughs> because you have done this, cursed are you among the animals, tame or wild. On your belly you shall crawl, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, and they will strike at your head while you strike at their heel. And to the woman he said, I will intensify your toil in childbearing. So there must have been no pain in childbearing back then. That's why we need to get back to the original, right? In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your urge shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we have this husband-wife relationship now has turned to master-slave relationship enters into the world. To the man, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat from it. Curse is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat its yield all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bear for you, and you shall eat the grass of the field. What a lovely diet. <laughs> By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread until you return to the ground for which you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Death is entered into the world. So because of the original sin, because of the fall of Adam and Eve, you and I, we have, because, and there's still the remnants of that that we receive in birth, because of that we have lost our true identity. This downfall led God to find another solution. Now this is the good news, my dear friends. Because of the Father's deep love for us, this downfall led to another solution in the fullness of time. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him will not be condemned, but whoever does not believe has already been condemned because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus, Jesus came into the world to restore you and me to our original identity as much as that can happen. And when you and I, when we Come, truly, come to truly understand this. Not up here. Here. And submit ourselves to this love. Then a whole new world opens up for us. You know, at the very heart of discipleship and stewardship, they're connected, is God's desire for us. At the very heart of discipleship is God's desire for you. God's love for us, that's what it is. The Lord's deepest desire is to enter into an intimate, personal relationship of love with each one of us. Personal, intimate. Personal, intimate. Not something out there. Personal, intimate. You formed my inmost being. You knit me in my mother's womb. 
My bones are not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, fashioned in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, this is from Psalm 139, your eyes, and Solomon is speaking to the Lord, your eyes saw me unformed. In your book all are written down, my days were shaped before one came to be. And then from the book of Jeremiah, prophet Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you. Do you believe that? Yes. Truly believe it? Yes. Changes everything if we do. Right? The living and true God tirelessly calls each person to that mysterious encounter. Each of us. That same relationship that the Lord desired with Adam and Eve, he desires with us. The mysterious encounter, this mysterious encounter, always, always is an invitation to a relationship leading to our identity and sending us on a mission. It was this way with Adam and Eve. It was this way with our Blessed Mother at the Annunciation. It was this way with Jesus himself. It was this way with the call of the disciples. So as you, as we engage this mysterious and living encounter day after day after day after day, then we come to know who we truly are. And then we begin to give up the identity that we created for ourselves. <coughs> and we reclaim, we reclaim our true identity. And then we are led to say yes to mission to the mission which Jesus has given to each one of us. Each of us uniquely, but I also believe communally. You know? Do you know your, you know, do you know your specific mission that Christ has given you? It's a question for you to think about. Because if you're not doing the mission he's giving you, then you're not doing the will of God. I mean, I don't like, to, I hate to put it so simple. <laughs> and it might sound kind of harsh, but sometimes simplicity seems harsh. But that's the reality. You know, if we never seek the mission, the will of God in our life, you know, we should get up, every, I said this yesterday, we should get up every day asking, Lord, what is your will for me today? What is it? Lead me to that. But I, I get, I would suspect it. I mean, well, I don't, should I ask this question? How many of you got up this morning even thinking about Jesus? You know, many don't. Many don't. Many don't. And many more never think about the will of God. They think about their own will. And they think they're okay. I'm a good person. I help others. I'm fine. That's not the Christian life. That's not. That's a false Christianity. I'll talk about that later, and later on this morning. Um, so, so in other words, as we, you and I, as we engage this mysterious encounter with the God who is 
passionately in love with us and discover who we really are, then we will actively choose, actively choose a life as his disciple, not on our own terms, but on his terms. Not on our own terms, but on his terms. And we will then experience this deep, <laughs> this deep and profound love of God. And we will experience greater joy. How many of you feel joyless most of the time? Don't raise your hand. I don't want to see it. <laughs> right? And we'll experience true freedom. Right? Not the freedom the culture says. This the culture defines it. But true freedom. And we'll experience true happiness in a life more fully fulfilled. How many of us want that? You want a life more fully fulfilled? Right? Then we have to do something about it. Right? And each of us are responsible for that. It just doesn't happen. Right? I wake up this morning, you know, oh, I feel so fulfilled today. <laughs> really? What do I call that? You know, an experience of deep and profound love of God. What do I call that? A life of deeper, greater joy and truer freedom. A life of true happiness and a life more fully fulfilled. What do I call that? I call it heaven. Yes, it's heaven. It's heaven on earth. Yes, it is possible to experience heaven on earth. How many of you are experiencing heaven on earth? How many of you want to experience heaven on earth? Because it's real. It is real. But it just doesn't fall out of the sky. Right? Okay. So now you know what your true identity was, what it's become, and hopefully what it will become. Right? You got that? Okay, so I'm going to move on a little bit. I'm going to have questions probably at the end because I want to make sure I get through all this material. Okay, I'm only on page seven <laughs> of 50. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so what are the challenges? What are the challenges of faithful discipleship? I mean, just a rhetorical question. How many of you think living a life of a dedicated disciple is easy? I can tell you it's not easy. I can tell you that. Because, how do I know it's not easy? Because if it was easy, every parish would be a stewardship parish. If it were easy, all churches would be full on Sunday. Ministries in the parishes and in our diocese would be flourishing and expanding. We would be opening parishes instead of closing them. Right? If it was easy. And all that stuff is happening because it's not easy because people don't want to take it on. They don't want to be a dedicated disciple. It's too hard. It demands too much. Well, don't you think this demanded something? Like his whole life. Ending in pain and suffering. This was given to you in your baptism, the cross of Jesus, with an expectation that we live it. Right? That's it. It's part of the covenant. The problem is we've rejected the covenant, I think. You know? All Christians would then be living a generous hospitality, a lively faith as dedicated disciples. 
So, so why, why is it such a challenge? There are many reasons, I think, but I'm going to share with you a few. First of all, I think the new religion of today, this is about the new religions of today, and this isn't something I've made up. I've received this in conferences and talks, so um, I'm not taking credit for any of this. But the, the, the new religion of today, I think, is secularism. You know, in the American landscape today, we are seeing or have seen a secular liberalism that wants to silence religious voices and disenfranchise religiously motivated voters and at the same time narrow the scope of free exercise of religion so that the new secular morality can be, become the norm in American society unrestrained. I mean, think about this, you know, the U.S. Supreme Court striking down the nation's longest traditional tradition, the understanding of marriage, is just one example. But it went beyond that. It changed the meaning of family by wiping away the need for a natural relationship. What's a natural relationship? Husband and wife, mother, father. Now anything goes, Right? Everything now is just a matter of, 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 of purely a matter of personal choice. In other words, there is no truth anymore. That is the society and culture in which we live. And the sad thing is that we have let it happen. We are in a big fight in our country right now over freedom of religion, freedom of conscience. So in a world of secularism, the practice of our faith they want to just relegate it to going to church on Sunday and kept out of the public sphere. We have got to stop that. Another way of looking at it is God has been replaced as the center of the universe. In other words, it's like, well, I can manage very nicely without God. Right? A lot of Christians think that. Except when I'm desperate or need him for something. How many people in our, in our world today... How many Christians, how many Catholics go to the Lord to pray when they want something, and that's it? That's a relationship of usury. Imagine if you only spoke to your spouse when you wanted something from them. You think you're, maybe that's happening, I don't know. <laughs> how long do you think you would be married? That would have ended a long time ago. Because it's a relationship not of love, but of usury. Right? God has been replaced as the center of the universe by whom? By man. Man is now the center of the universe and the new religion today is secularism. So in our culture today, there is also a growing movement that has become very loud and well-funded. It's the movement of atheism. You know, a survey released 10 years ago, 2009, by the Pew Research Center found that a quarter, one-fourth of Americans between the ages of 18 and 29 who have been, were surveyed said they were atheists, were agnostic, and had no religion. 25%. I would suspect after 10 more years, it's even greater today. Much greater. The largest, larger concern with secularism is, is, is that it damages people in that, and we see this in our, in our public and political discourse, it damages people in that it actually keeps people from being reasonable with one another. Right? We're no longer reasonable with one another. 
You know, do you think there's reasonableness in our culture today? There's none. And we see it more and more, and there's, it creates a greater level of intolerance for people of faith. You know? Beto O'Rourke, I don't know if you saw the news, he wants the government to take away all the tax of, of status, the free, you know, the um, tax-free status of all religious institutions if we don't believe in same-sex marriage, if we won't do a same-sex wedding. That'll never fly, it won't go anywhere, but that's, that's the mindset that's, that's growing in our culture today. We have to stop it, right? Because it deepens a division between faith and reason. That's a whole other talk. But the cores of secularism are very prominent. Here's a few of them. First of all, one is materialism. What is that? The material world is what makes us happy. We all buy into it. We have to have the latest and greatest gadgets, right? We all do. You know, that's why all of these, uh, these storage units are, are being built all over the place so people can store their excess materialism. <laughs> that's true. So they don't have room in their six-bedroom home, so they rent all this other space. That's true, right? But it's, and, and so it basically denies the existence, materialism basically denies the existence of God. I don't need God. God's not important. I have all this stuff that will make me happy, right? That's denying the existence of God. Another one is relativism. What's that? What's the doctrine that knowledge and truth and morality exist in relation to the culture, society, or some historical context, and, and, and it's not absolute? So if, if a person believes in relativism, then you think, people different, you think different people can have different views about what is moral and what is not moral. In other words, every individual... Every individual defines what is moral for him or herself. That's what that means. Then there's humanism, secular humanism. It's a doctrine emphasizing a person's capacity for self-realization through reason. Humanism rejects religion. It rejects the supernatural. That's why it's called human. Individualism. It's all about taking care of yourself. It's a belief and practice that every person is unique and self-reliant. So life's fulfillment comes from within and is determined only by you. It also implies that belief that the government and the church should butt out of individual affairs. Leave me to be who I want to be. That's what it is. And consumerism connected to materialism, a theory that an increasing consumption of goods is what will make me happy and bring me fulfillment. More is better, right? <laughs> Bigger is better, right? The newest is better, right? And then there's hedonism. It's a belief that pursuing pleasure, no matter what that pleasure is, leads to the, the, the greatest ethical good, it's all about the pursuit of pleasure. It's the me syndrome, right? And what will satisfy my own passions, my own needs, and my own appetites. 
and nobody can tell me what those are or should be. So in all of these isms, there's this, un this unbridled, unbridled ego, um, ego has taken over. You ever seen a runaway stallion? It's like that. You know, you can't control them. That's our culture today. Whether you want to believe it or not, but that is our culture in which you and I are living in today. And all of us, including myself, have, have bought into it in some way. The isms drive our way of living in this culture to some degree. Life is about what I can get out of it to make me happy and not what I can put into it to make the world better and me more holy. That's our culture. That's the culture of many Catholics. It's the culture of many Christians. It's the culture of many people of faith. Right? Let me ask you this. Did you pray for holiness today? Did you get up this morning and ask the Lord to make you holier more today than you were yesterday? Write that on your mirror in your bathroom. Lord Jesus, make me holier today than I was yesterday. Please. Make me holier today than I was yesterday. Please. That's a prayer. That's a connection. That's an intimate encounter. So how did all this happen? <laughs> how has our society come to this point where secularism has become so strong? It's happened gradually over time. Slowly. Little by little by little. It's like the boiling frog syndrome. Have you ever heard of that? If you haven't, I'll share it with you. They say if you put a frog in a pot of boiling water, right? Throw a frog in a pot of boiling water, it'll jump out right away, right? I mean, you'd jump out right away, right? There's <laughs> a way to escape the danger. But if you put a frog in a kettle that is filled with water that is cool and pleasant, that's enjoyable to the senses, and the passions, and his frog is in there, <laughs> right? And then you gradually turn the heat up until the water starts boiling. The frog will not become aware of the threat until it's too late. And then he will be unable to jump out of the water because the frog's survival instincts are geared towards detect detecting sudden changes, not gradual ones. So what killed the frog? He boiled to death? No. What killed the frog was his own ability, own ability to decide to jump out of the water. At one point, he no longer had the strength to jump out the frog had used up all of its energy in helping its body to adjust to the increase in water temperature. Obviously, this is a metaphor of how a slow, gradual change can lead to eventual undesirable consequences. 
And this, my friends, I believe is the case in the Christian world today. And what we see regarding the impact our culture has had and is having on the Christian way of life. And the way in which people are choosing or not choosing to live their Christian faith. The boiling water syndrome means that we have not been paying attention. And we wonder why the church is the way it is, why our culture is the way it is. You know, we, so we know we, we live today in, in a time of great change. Religion and faith are under attack. Um, our society, our culture are growing cold to religion. And while we've been busy living our lives, making our own way through life, the sands have been shifting under our feet. Even people who identify themselves as Christians often want to live with all of their options open. I mean, that's our kids today. They don't commit to anything. They want to live with their options open. Keep their options open, right? And in regards to practicing a life of faith, people seek to manage their own lives instead of living a life of Christian discipleship. They look at Jesus as some ethical model, right? Or some, he's a nice philosopher. Oh, he's a generous man with a heart for the poor and the suffering. You know, many people, Christians today, would rather walk around a lake and look at the turtles and ducks on Sunday and say, than stay a bunch of birds in a building called the church. This is their attitude. All right, it's 10. Take a break. <laughs> well, that clock's fast. That's, let, let, give me, let, me, let me finish one more thought. That's a couple minutes. That's a thought, four minutes fast. That's good. I'm going to look at this clock. <laughs> You know, one of the fastest growing groups in the world are the nuns, right? Not these sisters sitting here. Not these sisters sitting here. Because they're not the fastest growing <laughs> group in the world. <laughs> the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, nun. N-O-N-E-S, okay? They're a category of people who do not associate themselves with any religious denomination. They could have been baptized Catholic and raised Catholic. But now they do not associate with any religion. And statistically, 50% of all baptized Catholics who have left the church now identify themselves as nuns. Not like them. We want more of them. No affiliation. You know, Pope Benedict, he said this. I quote him. He said, the Jesus that makes everything okay for everybody is a phantom, a dream, not a real figure. The Jesus of the Gospels, the Jesus that the Catholic Church preaches, is by contrast demanding and bold. Right? If Jesus were really accepting and tolerant of all things and toward all people, do you think he would have ended up murdered on a cross? Really? He wouldn't have. But this is where our culture is today for many. Those in the pews, as well as those who are not in the pews. You know, Archbishop Shapu, he's the Archbishop of Philadelphia, he said this in his book, Strangers in a Strange Land. When talking about our Catholic faith today, the biggest failure of so many people of my generation, meaning the baby boomer generation, including parents, teachers, and leaders in the church, has been our failure 
to pass along our faith in a compelling way to the generation now taking our place. The reason the Christian faith doesn't matter to so many of our young people is that too often it really didn't matter to us. Not enough to shape our lives, not enough for us to suffer for it. You know, some fr- you know sometimes the truth hurt, hurts to hear. Okay? Christopher West, I don't know if you know who he is, but, you know, the theology of the body explained, right? He wrote this. He said, without reference to God's original plan, which we just talked about earlier, and its hope of restoration in Christ, people tend to accept discord. What do we mean by that? Well, (laughs) that's just the way it is, right? This is just as good as it's going to be. And he said... Quote, when we normalize our fallen state, it is akin to thinking that it is normal to be driving with flat tires. How many like to drive with four flat tires? <laughs> we sense that something isn't quite right. But when everyone drives around in the same state, not the state of Michigan, in the same state, in the same way, we lack a point of reference for anything different. End of quote. If we all think that life is as good as it gets, perhaps we are missing something and we really don't know it. Four flat tires. You see, your heart, your heart, your spiritual heart, your life is a tire, is the tire. Perfect communion with God and His love for us And our love for him is the air for our tires. And in the beginning, we all had air in our tires. In God's original plan before the fall of Adam and Eve, we were fully inflated with God's perfect love. But perhaps our tires have gone flat, and we don't really know it, because we have been consumed by the culture in which we live, just like everyone else. But God originally intended for us to drive with air in our tires. Our life is supposed to be filled, filled to the brim, overflowing with joy and peace and love. You and I, we we were created to drive with inflated tires, but yet sometimes we get distracted from the truth. You know, we don't have to be driving around with flat tires, just like everyone else. So let me ask you, how are your tires? Have they gone flat and you perhaps don't even realize it? You know, we get so comfortable living our faith in a certain way that we don't know any different. Let's take a break. So I want to continue on. So I just kind of shared with you what I thought was like the first reason why people are not living as intentional disciples. But I think the second reason why they're not living this, what we might call a primordial spirituality as God's intentional disciples, is because of two threats. And you can think about your own parishes in regard to what I might say here, but... 
in your own lives and the people you know and the culture in which you live. But I think the first threat, and, and I'm not passing judgment on anything, this is what I've seen, okay? Um, but the first threat, for people sitting in the pews, for people who go to Mass, <laughs> I think the biggest threat is not like radical atheism or radical Islam or whatever it is. I think the biggest threat into Christianity today is perhaps this. Being a good person and doing the right thing. Christianity today, I think, in many ways has been diminished to merely being a good person and doing the right thing or doing nice things for others. You know, the nuns, not these, but the N-O-N-E-S that I just mentioned, you know what they say life is about for them? What's the meaning of their life? What's is being a good person and doing the right thing. Now, I don't want you to get the impression I'm thinking that being a good person and doing the right thing is against Christianity. It's not. It's not opposed to a lively Christian faith, to a stewardship way of life. However, I believe it's, and I'm going to use this word, it's pathetically insufficient. It pitifully falls short. The duty to be a good person and doing the right thing doesn't come from faith. It comes from human nature, right? Not from faith. You know, in a sense, it's not even pre-New Testament or pre-Old Testament, it's pre or, but pre-Old Testament. Think about when Yahweh chose Abraham, right, back, I don't know, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Fine, I don't know how, I don't know the timeline right now. But it wasn't like Abraham was walking around wanting to be a bad person and doing wrong things, right? Even before Abraham was called to go, he had a desire in his heart to be a good person and do the right thing because it comes from human nature. But this is a threat today when Christianity is diminished to that notion, just being a nice person and doing the right thing. Because at the heart of Christianity is this. For those of you who can't see it, oh, it's tippy, okay, that's why it's against the wall. We'll have to get that fixed because he's hidden. But it's a crucifix, right? It's a crucifix. The heart of Christianity is the cross of Jesus, to which you and I are called to fully embrace in our lives. A life of sacrifice in union with him. This cross was given to each one of you in baptism. You're probably this big, most of us, right? Right? But if you listen to the words at the next baptism, you'll hear, receive the cross of Jesus Christ, which I now trace on your forehead and invite your parents and godparents to do the same. You receive this cross, him, 
when you were baptized and given this covenant with him. But in today's world, the meaning of the cross and our call to embrace it has been diminished or even disappeared. You know, in today's world, all suffering is rejected at all costs. We see it more and more and more as states are legalizing assisted suicide. I'm surprised it hasn't come to Michigan yet, or has it? I don't think it has. Not yet. So there's a rejection of suffering at all costs, even if it means taking one's own life. That is still suicide. Right? The meaning doesn't change. That's the reality. The reality doesn't change. People call it compassionate care. Really? So care is killing someone. Isn't that nice care? Right? Killing yourself. Isn't that nice care? So I think that's the first threat. It's just okay to be a good person and do the right thing and call it Christianity. The second threat to Christian faith is a person, I believe, is a person who has been sacramentalized and not evangelized. Most Catholics today have a second grade understanding of the Catholic faith, no matter what age they are. Second grade. Think about that. We have whole parishes of people who have been sacramentalized but not evangelized. By this I mean a person who practices their faith, meaning they go to church on Sunday or Saturday, but their heart has not been evangelized yet. Stop this from running, rolling down. Right? Does it make sense? You may not agree with me. That's okay. I don't expect everyone to agree with me. So in other words, people have received the sacraments, but their heart is not on fire with the Holy Spirit. Right? They're not on fire. They're okay with being a good person and doing the right thing. That's not a heart on fire. They're pre-Easter and pre-Pentecost Catholics. Pre-Easter, pre-Pentecost Catholics, right? A good friend of mine, in other words, the good news hasn't hit them yet, as is, is, is a, a good friend of mine says, they have not been good newsized yet. <laughs> it's a new word, good newsized. So I invite you to pray for a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit in your lives every day. Put, it, put that on your mirror, too. Lord Jesus, pour out your Holy Spirit anew upon me today in abundance. Abundance. So I can embrace this call to discipleship as you desire me to do. That's a bold request. And it may cause suffering. But that is okay. If we're not willing to suffer for him then we will never be united with him in eternity. Right? But pray for that every day. This, not just for you. Pray it for your family. Pray it for your parish. Pray it for your city. Pray it for this diocese, a new outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all of us. 
every day. Because if we don't pray for it, nothing's going to happen. It won't. You get what you ask for. If you don't ask for it, you don't get it. <laughs> it's not rocket science. What do we hear in the gospel? Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. But if you don't ask or seek or knock, then you will continue to live a life with flat tires. If you want to do that, it's your choice. But I'm here. I've been sent here, I believe, to light a fire under the And how I wish it were already a blazing. Right? So I think many in our parishes who are at Mass on Sundays fit this description. In other, words, in other words, the joy and the gratitude and the love that Christianity is about is not in that person, or at least it doesn't appear evident. People are merely satisfied to fulfill the duty to go to Mass on Sunday, and that's it. And so where this is the biggest threat is in passing on the faith to the next generation. Mom and dads who are practicing their faith with this kind of a heart, sacramentalized but not evangelized, they might be faithful on the level of a sacramental life. But my dear friends, their faith is not contagious. Is your faith contagious? When people meet you, do they know you love Jesus? Do you share that? Their faith is not contagious and caught and attractive to the next generation. You know, people tell me I inspire them. So what? You know why I inspire them? It's the Lord inspired them because I'm not afraid to tell people I love the Lord and talk about them. And you say, well, you might say, well, Bishop, that's your job. <laughs> right? How many of you think that's my job? How many of you are baptized? And confirmed, it's your job. It's your job. And if you're not doing your job, something's wrong. Okay? If we are not alive in the Holy Spirit, how can we be a contagion for others in passing on this beautiful Catholic faith that we have? Faithful churchgoers are not evangelizing their children because they have not been evangelized themselves. That's the problem. Right? In other words, their faith is not attractive to their children. I mean, how often do I hear parents complaining that their kids no longer practice their Catholic faith? How many of you have kids like that? Do you ever ask them why? Huh? What do they say? God's everywhere. Huh? It's not relevant. Do you ever talk to them about getting to heaven? That with an attitude like that, you're never going to get there? And what's their response? You know? Do you ever invite them to come with you? Or do you just say, well, they just, I've talked to them enough times, you know, they're going to do what they're going to do, and, you know, so be it. You know, so be it. You know, if they want to live that way, so be it. That's not the heart of a Christian. You know, we should continue to invite, because that's love. Right? We should continue to invite. Because that's a way of loving. 
in spite of maybe being rejected. It's not about you. It's about your concern for them. And when we have concern for others to the point that we invite them back because we're concerned about their salvation, then we'll get off our butts and start inviting people back to church. I would challenge every one of you to call somebody up that you know in your parish that, doesn't, that hasn't been for a while, call them up and invite them to come to church with you this weekend. I challenge you to do that. And they can say no, but so what? It's not a rejection of you, it's their rejection of God. Don't take it on yourself. But if you don't invite them, you know, I can, you know, I'm not going to get into it, but you know, one invitation that I answered because someone called me up to join a Bible study you know, a, a zillion years ago, it changed to the complete course of my life. One invitation. You don't know how the Lord is going to use that invitation. But if you never extend it, you know, you will never plant a seed. You know, truly. If we want our parishes to be full, then it's going to be up to you to bring them back, not me. Right? And if we're living a life in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit will do it through us. It's not, it's not on your ability to do this. He's using you as an instrument. But if you don't allow yourself to be an instrument, he can't use you. Right? Simple as that. It's not rocket science. We have to get off our butts and get people back in the church. I don't know all those people, but you do. Right? You do. And you can't be afraid or embarrassed by your faith. You know? I'll get off my pulpit here. <laughs> I just get, I just, you know, I'm passionate. You know, but so, you know, when I hear people, their children don't practice, you know, there's many reasons for this, I guess, but there's certainly one of them, it was not attractive to them. It's not, it did not cause or bring about a deep conversion to Jesus. That's what it's about. It's about a deep conversion to Jesus. You know, Jesus has become a concept to them. A nice thought, instead, a real person to them. Is Jesus a real person to you? You know, is this the way you live your faith, you know, attractive to your kids or your grandkids? Is it a contagion? Is your faith a contagion to others? This is something for all of us to think about, including myself, including our priests. You know, are we, is our life, a, as, as a disciple of Jesus, a contagion? For others, right? So, why are these two threats threats? One reason is because they lack the primacy of a relationship. What is driving them, I believe, is not a love relationship, but something else. Lively faith. Lively faith is about a relationship that has claimed my life. Right? It has determined its direction and has redefined my identity and mission. Lively faith or intentional discipleship flows from a relationship that has claimed me. A relationship that has claimed my heart for its own. You know? You know, when I met with kids prior to confirmation, I asked them, how many of you are bored at Mass? I asked every class that for eight years. And about 85 to 90% of the kids raised their hands. Why is that? They said they were bored. I said, it's because you're boring. 
And then I laughed and they laughed just like you. <laughs> but it's because they don't understand what's happening. They've never heard the, heard the good news. They haven't. The Lord hasn't claimed their life. They've never heard the good, the good news at every sacramental moment. And you probably, most of you haven't heard this either. Every time you participate in the sacrament, every time you receive a sacrament, it's a personal, intimate encounter with Him in faith. Do you come to Mass seeking an encounter with Jesus? Is that on your mind when you walk through those front doors? Lord Jesus, I'm, you know, people say, well, you know, people look at the sacraments as the events you go to, right? Oh, come on, kids, we're going to Mass. So you're like you're going to an event or a concert or something, right? When was the last time you said to somebody, I'm going to, I'm going to church to seek a deep encounter with Jesus today at Mass? Try that. I know you might have a hard time getting the words out because you've never said those before. <laughs> but try it. Because then you're thinking about it. And you're desiring it when you go, when you get there. I desire... Lord, I'm coming here today because I want to encounter your love and mercy in ways I've never had before. Come to church tomorrow with that on your mind. You'll have a whole different experience. Seriously. And do it every time, not just tomorrow. I'm getting off my track here, but anyway. It has to be said, you know. They've been, these kids have not been good newsized. <laughs> but I think it's the greatest Catholic secret, kept Catholic secret, unfortunately. You know, even the, you know, either they've never been told about it or they don't pay attention. You know, they too lack the primacy of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why? Because they've never been taught how to enter engage, or to engage a relationship with Jesus. Because oftentimes it's not part of our faith formation programs. It's not part of our sacramental preparation programs. You know, we've spent all of our time, this is where the church is, um, in my opinion, has failed its people. We've spent a lifetime giving people information and we've given them no formation. Formation changes the heart, information does nothing. Because they forget it, right? But that's, that's the way all the catechetical, that's how our catechetical programs are taught. That's how our sacramental preparation programs are taught. We give them lots of information about what's going to happen, what this means, what that means. You know, but we don't, we don't lead them into an encounter. We don't teach them that, unfortunately. And that's why everyone's left the church. Because, because it's, about a re, it's about relationship. You know? They know about Jesus. We're good at teaching about Jesus. Right? We're good at that. But people don't know him personally. This is the main problem in our church today, my dear friends. It's it. They know how to say prayers. They have them all memorized, right? But they don't know how to pray. I mean, think about it. How many times have I been in a parish council setting, for example, or a meeting of some kind, and I will ask, would you mind praying? And people kind of want to crawl under the table. <laughs> Catholics kind of want to crawl under the table. Why is that? If you, if you know Jesus, the words are going to come out, and you don't have to think about what you're going to say. You know, it's not about praying a prayer from rote or from memory. It's about knowing Jesus and not being afraid to invite him into the, the, you know, the meeting or whatever it might be. 
You know, oftentimes you pray grace at your at meals, right? What's the grace you pray? Bless us, O Lord, and these I give. Why don't you make one up from the heart? So it comes from the heart and not the head. Huh? Think about that. It, it has to come from a place of relationship, right? It really does, you know? You know, when I started perpetual adoration at the cathedral in Rapid City, it was always a challenge of getting people to sign up for a holy hour. <laughs> Imagine that. One of the most frequent responses from those who were challenged or fear, from those who were challenged or fearful of signing up was this. Think about this. I'm embarrassed to even say it. What would I do for an hour in prayer? In other words, what they're saying is. What they're saying is, what would I do for a whole hour with Jesus? That's what that says. That's my translation. But I don't think I'm far off. Right? We can spend hours and hours in quiet attention before the television. Right? But why is it so difficult to spend an hour in quiet attention with Jesus, who loves us more than that TV set does, more than we love ourselves. That's the problem. We waste so much time on other things and give very little time to the Lord. We're minimalists. You know, Pope Francis Candelli speaks about asking for a renewed daily personal encounter with Jesus Christ. He speaks he's, from the very beginning of his pontificate. He's talked about this. Archbishop Reno Fisichella, he's, he's the head of the Pontifical Council for the Promotion of the New Evangelization. He puts it this way, I quote. He said, faith has become like a smoldering cinder, like smoldering cinders or embers, weakened by sin and secularism. It must be reawakened, fanned, and fanned into flame, Right? We must help Christians to encounter once again this Jesus, especially those who have left the church. But I also think this clearly applies to those sitting in the pews each Sunday as well. We must help Christians once again encounter this Jesus. Christianity is a call for each one of us to embrace the cross of Jesus every day in union with him. What did he say? If you wish to be my disciple, if you wish to be my disciple, you must deny yourself daily, pick up your cross and follow. That's what he said. So those aren't my words. Those aren't my words. If you wish to be a disciple, are we disciples? This is discipleship. You know, oftentimes, as I said, people don't even think about Jesus. And as I said, how many of you got up this morning thinking about him? How many of you got up this morning longing for heaven? Your life could be taken away when you walk out that door. Are you ready for heaven? We'll never be ready for heaven if we don't think about heaven because we have done nothing to prepare for it. Simple. Simple. Not rocket science. Where are our minds and hearts oriented in this world? The things of this world 
or Jesus in heaven. It doesn't matter if we're women religious or bishop, priests. It doesn't matter. It's all the same for us. If we're never thinking about heaven, what makes you think you're going to get there? Oh, I just presume this is going to happen because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a nice person and I do the right thing. Right? That's presumption sinful. That's a sin. Presumption is a sin. I hate to tell you that. We need to live our lives in Christ intentionally. Intentional discipleship. This, this discipleship just doesn't happen. Okay? So we must walk with him. We must be with him. We must talk to him. We must share our lives with him, our love with him, just as you would with your kids, your grandkids, your spouse, all those whom you love dearly. A relationship with Jesus is not complicated. We live in faith. We know he's there. You can talk to him right now. He's right here. Right? But we will never follow someone whom we do not love. Not this love up here, but this love here. But we will follow someone with whom we are deeply in love with. Not only that, we will give our lives away to him. How many of you are married? I'm married to the church, so I can raise my hand. <laughs> now, <laughs> I would suspect during the time you were dating and getting to know each other, right? Something was happening in your heart, right? This pitter-patter, pitter-patter, pitter-patter of love, right? Right? And as you engage this relationship over time, your hearts were beating out of sight, right? You were at work thinking about that person, right? You got up thinking about that person. You went to bed, you talked to them throughout the day. You went to bed thinking about that person, right? Say yes, Bishop, that's what happened. Yes. <laughs> because it is what happened. They were on your mind throughout the day. You couldn't wait to talk to them again and to see them again, right? You were claimed by them, right? And you wanted that person to open up to you and you to them. One of your deepest desires was to be with him or her, right? Your actions and your behaviors perhaps changed, right? The guys quit going out drinking and they spent their time with their girlfriend, right? You became someone new, right? That person was filling you with new life, right? That relationship had claimed your life, right? That relationship claimed your heart, and you wanted to give your life to that person, right? In other words, it totally changed the direction of your life and gave you a new identity, right? Friends, this is what a lively faith with Jesus Christ is all about. That's it. Lively faith is about a relationship that has claimed one's life. It is this I-thou relationship that has claimed my heart. 
In other words, my deepest desire is to be with the one who is filling me every day. Your spouse, your desire for that future spouse is filling your life every day, right? It's why I get out of bed in the morning. It's what seizes my attention. It's what amazes me with gratitude and joy. Not only that, this relationship that has claimed my life has also determined its direction and has defined my identity and mission. You know, one of my favorite quotes is from Father Pedro Arupe. He was once the head of the Jesuit order, but I've used this quite frequently because it is in, indeed, it's really one of my favorites. He says this, and I quote, he said, nothing is more practical than finding God. That is, falling in love with God in a quite absolute way. What you are in love with, what seizes your imagination, will affect everything. It will decide what will get you out of bed in the morning, what you will do with your evenings, how you will spend your weekends, what you read, who you know or who you hang around with, what breaks your heart, and what amazes you with joy and gratitude. Fall in love. Stay in love, and it will decide everything. Lively faith, lively discipleship first begins with a relationship of intimacy where Jesus has truly claimed your hearts. Lively faith happens in the heart, not the head. It's, it's um, I want to be with Jesus again and again and again and again. When we think about this, What is it? I want to be with Jesus again and again and again. What is it? This is heaven. It's heaven on earth. Don't you want heaven? Huh? Don't you want on earth what it is in heaven? We say that every day. On earth as it is in heaven. Don't you want heaven on earth? As it is in heaven? So by those words that Jesus gave us, it's possible. Right? That's right. Where faith is not alive, our relationship with the Lord is a means to something else. You know, a priest friend of mine talks about his visit to second graders just before Christmas one year. And he asked them if they were getting excited for Christmas. Of course, they all raised their hands. Yeah, 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 yeah. They asked him if, he asked them if, if, they, if they loved Santa. Yeah, 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 I love Santa. He asked them if they would love Santa even if he didn't bring them any presents. Raise your hands. <laughs> what happened? No hands were raised. Because it's not their love for Santa. Santa was a means to something else. He was a means for what they really love, which is presents. In lively faith, this relationship is not a means to something else. This relationship is heaven. To be with Jesus every day in an encounter in prayer is heaven. This is my desire every day, to be with him. 
And if I have to give up something else, I will do it. If I have to get up at 4.30 instead of 5.30 to pray, I will do it. Even if I go to bed at midnight. It's the primacy of a relationship. What is, driving, what is the driving force is the primacy of this relationship. If I have to think, change this or that in order to be with Jesus, I will. Because I want that again and again and again. I want to be with the one who is filling me and changing my life. That's lively faith. Falling in love with Christ will decide everything. Just like two people falling in love, it reorients one's life. So I'm going to ask you a question. Have you fallen deeply in love with Jesus? Have you asked Jesus to lead you deeper into this love relationship? Or are you just fine with the way it is? And do you trust that he will lead you there? You know, when we lack faith, where our faith isn't alive, then our relationship with God is a means to something else. And we will not seek him at all, or we will seek him for the wrong reasons, and not purely because we love him. People oftentimes go to pray because they want something. Right? That's a terrible relationship. It's a relationship, but it's not a healthy one. Right? What's wrong with going to prayer and just sitting there in front of someone who loves you more than ever? It's like two people have been married 80 years, right? They're driving down the road together and there's complete silence as they're going down the road. And sometimes, you know, silence, what? And the, and the spouse says, it's enough for me just to be in the presence of that person. Prayer, it's just enough for me. to be in his presence. Is it for you? The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this. You know, the, the, the heart is our hidden center, right? Beyond the grasp of our reason, only the Spirit of God can fathom the human heart and know it fully. The heart, our deepest, this deepest place in us, is a place of decision, deeper than our psychic drives. It's a place of truth, where we choose life or death. It's a place of encounter. Because as an image of God, you and I are images of God, as an image of God, we live in relation. It's a place of covenant. It's the difference between a covenant and a contract. A contract has a beginning and an end. When the requirements of the contract are fulfilled, the, the contract is over. Right? A covenant begins at your baptism. It never ends. It's like a marriage covenant. It should never end. Um, so lively faith, intentional discipleship, is the fruit of the lived experience of God's intimate and personal love in one's heart. Huh? And where we have faith, where we have failed as a church, I think, as I said earlier, is in leading and teaching people how to engage this relationship. As I said earlier, people know how to say prayers very well, but they really don't know how to pray. 
They don't know how to engage this intimate, personal love relationship within one's heart with the God who loves them more than they can possibly imagine. You know, the first duty of your pastor is this. It's not programs. It's not organizing projects or administration. No. The first duty of a pastor is to lead his people to a deep intimacy with this Trinitarian love. A heart-to-heart, close relationship with the Trinity. I mean, think about it. Isn't that an exciting vision for priesthood? You know? Everything else is secondary. You know? And if your parishes are falling apart, because this is not happening. That's the reality. That's the truth. That's the truth. If your parishes are falling apart, because this is the reality. People are not encountering Jesus. They're not living in this love relationship. You know? And if it hasn't happened in the heart of the pastor or the bishop or anyone else, it will, it will be very difficult to lead others to it. You know, Pope Benedict said this. He said, the faithful, you, expect only one thing from their priests, that they be specialists in promoting this encounter between God and man. They be specialists. Huh? So it's the first about an intense, intimate relationship that leads me to discover my true identity because God reveals that to me. And then he sent me on mission as his disciple. And because my heart is awakened, because my heart is alive in the Holy Spirit, because my heart is deeply longing for God, then I freely choose to go on mission because I believe and I trust in this God who has intimately loved me. In fact, if I have fallen in love with him, I will do anything for him. Nothing will stand in the way. Amen? Amen. We've kind of talked about our original identity, what happened, right? And how do we get it restored? How do we get it restored? You know, this relationship, right? Because what happens in this relationship is we engage this relationship with Jesus. He reveals to us personally our identity. Yes, we might have a general identity that I'm created in God's image and likeness, but for most people, that just just, just a bunch of words, right? But if we engage this relationship, Jesus will reveal to us who we truly are in his eyes, not in some false sense of self that we've created for ourselves, you know? How many of you beat yourselves up, right? That's not the will of God. It's not, you know? That's the will of the evil one. Because the more we beat ourselves up, we, we, we begin to feel like we're not worthy of love. And so, if I'm not worthy of why would I go to him, right? But our identity leads us to mission, right? So it begins relationship, leads to identity. Identity leads to mission. Every single one of you has a personal mission that Christ has given you, Okay? This is the way it was for Jesus. 
This is the way it was for his life. As he engaged this relationship with his father in the hidden years, which we don't know a whole lot about, right? You know, he came back, he was found in the temple, came home and became obedient. Right? And then the next thing we know, it's like he's starting his, his public ministry, you know, with his baptism, right? But as he engaged his relationship with his father in the hidden years, he discovered his identity. What was his identity? We heard it when he got baptized. The heavens opened up and we heard a voice saying, you are, you are my beloved son, right? In whom I am well pleased. Jesus knows who he is because of his relationship with the Father in which he engaged. Then the coming down of the Holy Spirit upon him at baptism in the Jordan then sent him on mission, right? To proclaim the gospel, the good news. So relationship, identity, mission. A deep love for the Father will always lead to surrender, giving one's life away, even if it means death. Jesus did it. Parents would do it for their kids, right? What parent wouldn't take a bullet for their kid, right? A husband would do it for his wife, if he deeply loves her, right? <laughs> a little qualifier on there. I'm passing no judgment. Just throwing it out there. Mary, our blessed mother, her life was the same way. Her deep relationship with the Lord, when asked to bring the Lord into the world, was what allowed her to say yes, even with all the many questions and the unknowns, right? What do we hear in Luke's gospel? She was greatly troubled, right? At what was said and then pondered on what sort of greeting this is. What did the angel say? Do not be afraid. So the angel must have saw or experienced the fear in her heart. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. What did she say to the angel? Well, well, how can this be? You know, I, I've never had a relation with, man, with a man. Right? And then the angel again said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What did she say? All right. All right. Behold, I am just the handmaid of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your will. So she derived her identity from her relationship with God. Right? God revealed that to her. You are highly blessed. Right? But this is what I want you to do for me. Relation, identity, mission. That's how it works. She relieved, received her identity and her mission because of this intimate relationship with the Lord, and she responded to God's grace. You know, when I was in my late 20s, I was a lazy and lost Catholic. Can you believe it? <laughs> believe it. I'd be too embarrassed to tell you all the details. But by God's grace, I began to seriously pray for a lived experience of the Lord's love for me every day, right? 
Because I was told my whole life that God loves you in every religion class. Oh, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you, right? You've heard that? You know what I thought? Like, what the heck does that mean? I have no idea. Really? God loves me? Isn't that a nice thought? Right? Isn't that just a nice thought? And then I began to pray. It's like went through, I was floundering in life, and you know, I began to pray for that. Lord, give me, please. You've been you've told me, I've been told you my whole life you love me. I don't know what that means, or looks like, or feels like. Lord, give me a lived experience of your love for me personally. I began to pray that every day. And even though I was, as I began to engage and enter this relationship of love, I began to experience in my heart the depths of Christ's love in spite of my sin, my sinfulness. God indeed answers the prayers of those who seek his love for love's sake. I didn't ask God to find me a job. I didn't ask the look at I was unemployed at the time. I didn't ask the Lord to make me happy. I didn't ask the Lord to, you know, give me money so I can support myself. I asked the Lord for a lived experience of love, for love's sake. It wasn't a means to an end, it was the end. Huh? <clears throat> and then something began to change in my own heart. It became awakened, became alive, you know. I couldn't get enough. I wanted to learn more about God, about our faith, and about the sacraments, even though I'd already received them, you know. I wanted to go beyond a second-grade understanding of my Catholic faith. And I began to realize that all that I have, all that I was, all that I had hoped to become, was a result of God's love and nothing that I did. And once this became heart knowledge instead of something in the head, then I was free, free to live my life for the Lord. When we fall in love with someone, our hearts will be awakened. My heart was awakened and this I-thou relationship claimed me claimed my heart and my life has never been the same. Even today, as I continue to engage this relationship with the Lord, with Jesus, the more and more and more I come to know my true identity. It's not a one-time deal because we can't take it all at once. Our heart's not ready for it. So it's little by little. And, and this identity has led me to the priesthood. It's led me to this apostolic and priestly mission. From flying airplanes to the Bishop of Saginaw. Go figure. <laughs> right? That's kind of the greatest mystery. Almost up to the level of the Trinity. <laughs> at, least, at least in my life. You know? I think I understand the Trinity more than that. <laughs> I don't know. So, rec so reclaiming my true identity. You know, what happened? It was, it was, there was a restoration of, 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 of my own heart, 
more and more and more to perhaps what it was like prior to the fall of Adam and Eve. The Lord's restoring me to this original spirituality. I'm a long ways from, from that, but I'm a lot further than I was 40 years ago. You know, I have to tell you. So it's relationship identity mission. And this is not only for individuals, but I think this relationship identity mission also creates lively parishes. Is your parish lively? The pastor and the people receive their identity and mission from their relationship, the communal relationship with Christ. So lively faith or faithful stewardship, discipleship, whatever you want to call it, it's not a program. It's not a program. It's a relationship. Right? And it will be difficult to live this authentic discipleship, stewardship life without this awakening of the heart, including the awakening of the heart of the parish, which is the body of Christ, right? So when we hold back and do not engage, then we will not live our true identity. You know, Pope Francis, in, um, he writes in The Joy of the Gospel, he writes this, I'm going to quote him. He says, My mission of being in the heart of the people is not just a part of my life, or badge that I take off. It's not an extra or just another moment in life. Instead, it is something I cannot uproot from my being. That I cannot uproot from my being without destroying my very self. He said, I am a mission on this earth. That is the reason why I am here in this world. Do we see ourselves as a mission on this earth? Do you see yourself as a mission on this earth? You know? You know, so, so we've been talking about this relationship of love with the Lord leads us to identity and then to lead to one's mission, but so often we get it turned around. Instead of rim, relationship, identity, mission, instead of rim, we live mere mission, identity, relationship. We think oftentimes if we do a bunch of good stuff for the Lord, right? We do all this wonderful volunteer work, you know? We're at the church constantly doing this and that and this and that, right? Then we can have a nice relationship with God and we will be loved, right? People think because of their involvement in the parish, that's why God loves them and they can earn God's love. The more they do, the more God will love them, right? That's what many people think. How backward is that? It's very backward. That way of thinking and acting turns this beautiful love relationship with Jesus into a utilitarian relationship. In other words, we're trying to earn his love. What's wrong with that? <laughs> It's a heresy. If that's the way you're living your life, you're living a heresy. That's a lie. Right? The evil one wants, wants you to live your life that way. Because the more you do, the more you'll get burnt out. And then eventually you'll just get tired and forget, forget I would just forget it. You know? Just stop doing everything. Had enough. 
And then your prayer life starts going into the tank and your family, you know, it's just down the slippery slope. If we're going to live that way, the evil one will take us down to the slippery slope to death. Seriously. And besides, when that happens, we usually determine what our mission is. And, we, and it's on our terms. Right? It's on our terms. Instead of God revealing it to us through his personal love. My dear friends, if we live that kind of a life, then that is a life of faith at risk. A couple of stories from the Gospels will point this out. I'm sure you are all familiar with these two passages because most of you often agree with one of the persons involved. How many Marthas out there? <laughs> right? You know the story, right? I would suspect many of you side with Martha. How many of you side with Martha? Go ahead, raise your hand and be honest. You know? That's okay. How many of you side with Mary? How many don't side with anybody? <laughs> right? Especially the Marthas. You think Martha's getting a bad deal, right? She's getting a bad rap. The other gospel passage I'll talk to you about in a minute is the one about the prodigal son. How many of you side with the, with the elder son? Think he got a bad rap. Right? You think the younger son deserved what he got. Well, he didn't deserve what he got. Right? Isn't that way you think? Is that the way you feel? Right? Well, both of these are examples of mission identity relationship instead of relationship, identity, mission. We so often defend Martha and the elder son. Why? Because we identify with them. Martha was the one who invited Jesus over. Right? Was it Mary? And then Martha's complaining about all the work that she was doing for Jesus. Right? Well, Mary wasn't helping her. Right? What did Jesus say? Martha, 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 you are burdened by many things, about many things. You are burdened. Why would one be burdened if they're doing work for Jesus? Think about that. I mean, it's really something to think about. You are burdened about many things. When we reverse relationship, identity, mission, to mission, identity, relationship, we create our own burdens and anxieties because it's not flowing from the relationship with Jesus. It's an experience of alone and not with. Martha felt alone. Mary felt with Jesus. Mary was with Jesus and not alone. Martha was the one to invite Jesus over, yet she was burdened. Not only that, she was angry. Not only that, she was resentful. How holy is that? Right? The elder son was the same way. He was angry and resentful, right? Why? I'll tell you why. Because he obeyed his father out of a sense of duty. Out of a sense of duty. What did he say? 
I have done everything. I never once disobeyed you. Right? That's what he said. So now I am entitled. And your son isn't. So it was a real sense of entitlement. Right? What did the father say? He said this. Son, everything I have is yours. Everything I have is yours. That didn't matter. The elder son was angry and resentful. Right? He was not living out of a deep relationship of love with his father. It was a relationship of usury. If I'm obedient to him, then I should get this. A relationship of entitlement. He was trying to earn his father's love. And what happened? It led to anger and jealousy. His mission was to please the father by doing all of these things, by being obedient, right? This is how he was living his life. That gave him his identity as this elder son, and because if he was obedient to his father in this way and did everything he was told, you know, just religiously and reverently or whatever, then his father would love him. It would lead to a deeper relationship. And as we see in the gospel, that didn't, that didn't lead him to a deeper relationship. It led to anger and, resentful and resentfulness and jealousy. When we live mission identity relationship it has nothing to do with love the father the elder son did not minister he he did not be he wasn't dutiful to his father because of love that wasn't his motivation martha she was anxious and burdensome about him and she wasn't doing this for jesus out of love out of a love relationship it was utilitarian. Right? And when this happens in our parish, this lights no parish on fire. No matter how much the Marthas and the elder sons are doing in the parish, it lights no fire on no parish on fire. In fact, it's unattractive. You know, do you find burden and resentfulness attractive? Right? Do you find that attractive? Burdensome and resentfulness is it's unattractive. A bad marriage doesn't attract people to marriage, right? A burdened, resentful relationship, unjoyful, unfulfilled, unhappy, not filled with love and warmth with, with God, doesn't attract people to a relationship with God. It's unattractive. It's not the will of God. But we often defend Martha and the elder son because we identify them. This is not the experience we want to have. Their behavior is not the will of God. It's not a lively faith. It's mission, identity, relationship driven instead of the other way around. It didn't begin with a relationship with God. And that is what created the burdens and the chaos. Because it did not be begin with a relationship with God. So how do we create parishes that are awakened and alive? How do we create families that are awakened and alive? 
The only way, I think, is to first engage a personal relationship with God ourselves, each of us, every single day through a life of prayer. Not five minutes. That's not a life of prayer. Turn the TV off. Take an hour. Do some spiritual. When was the last time you read a spiritual book? When have, when have you really taken, made choices to nourish your faith in a very intentional way? You know, I can say, I'll give you all of this today, unless it's put into practice, it's just, then it's really, you know, then you have wasted your time. I haven't wasted my time because I like to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> and we need to teach it in parishes, teach it in the families. Not, again, not about saying prayers, but an encounter, entering the encounter of, not of the mind, but the heart with the one who deeply loves us. Okay, So this prayer puts us into relationship with Jesus, with the Lord, where we give God permission to love us. Let me ask you a question. Have you given God permission to love you? Have you given God permission to love you? Or just think, oh, God loves me. God loves me. Isn't that a nice thought? Seriously. Have you given God permission to love you? You might think this is a kind of a weird, a weird question, but he's not going to break into our lives. He's only going to wait for an invitation. That's the reality. Have you given God, Lord Jesus, I give you permission to love me with your whole heart? Do it right now. Lord Jesus, I want to experience your love more than I ever have before in my whole life. Lord Jesus, take away any fears that I might have that is resisting your love. Speak to Jesus like I just did. That's a relationship. Huh? You know, if you look at what, what prayer really is, is, is an encounter of God's desire for us, united with our desire for the Lord. A life of prayer is the way in which Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, teaches and forms you and me to be disciples. And in this encounter, we are brought into this intimate relationship whereby we humbly listen to the word, to his word. We share our hearts we offer praise and worship. We seek forgiveness and sincerely seek God himself, knowing that he loves us, he hears us, and will respond in his own way according to his will. That's surrender. Lord, I surrender myself to you. Love me as you wish. Whatever you do to me, I thank you, I praise you, I give you glory. And so then what happens in prayer is that we discover who we really are. In other words, the secret of my true identity is hidden in the love and mercy of God. And as I seek the love and mercy of God, 
that it no longer becomes hidden. It begins to be revealed to me. I cannot hope to find myself in any place, my true self in any place other than in God. And so as you approach a life of prayer, you must, you must have great confidence in God's love for you. Because God's salvific power, it frees us. It frees us so we can be our true selves. So how do we create parishes that are awakened and alive? St. John Paul II in Novo Millennio Innuente, he says this, I quote, Our Christian communities must be genuine schools of prayer. That's the first thing. Genuine schools of prayer. Where the meeting with Christ is expressed, not just in imploring help, which is oftentimes all we do, help me, Lord, but also in thanksgiving, praise, adoration, contemplation, listening, and ardent devotion, until the heart truly falls in love. How about that? Huh? Intense prayer, yes, but it does not distract us from our commitment to history. By opening our heart to the love of God, it also opens it to the love of our brothers and sisters and makes us capable of shaping history according to God's plan. Isn't that what we want to do in Saginaw? We want to shape the history, a new history, right? Friends, this is living a disciple way of, discipleship way of life. But it would be wrong to think, he says, that ordinary Christians can be content with a shallow prayer that is unable to fulfill their, to fill their whole life, especially in the face of the many trials to which today's world subjects faith. They would not be only mediocre Christians. How many of us want to be merely mediocre Christians? But they would be Christians at risk. They would run the insidious risk of seeing their faith progressively undermined and would perhaps end up succumbing to the allure of substitutes, accepting alternative religious proposals, and even indulging in far-fetched superstitions. End of quote. And I have to say, for many Catholics and Christians in our world today, this is what has happened. What did he say? It would, it would be wrong to think that ordinary Christians can be content with a shallow prayer life that is unable to fulfill their whole life. Is your prayer life fulfilling your whole life? It's a question for you to think about. If this is our mindset, this is how we are content with our relationship with the Lord, then St. John Paul II says our faith is at risk. This is not what God intends for us. And so we should never be content with it either. If we are content with a shallow prayer life, then we will not have a lively faith. If our parishes are content with a shallow prayer life, we will not have lively parishes. Um, if, our family is, if our families are content with a shallow prayer life, there will not be lively faith. There will only be Christians at risk. And we see this happening day after day after day. Our society is filled with Christians at risk. This is exactly what happened in our church, in our world today, like the frog in the boiling pot, driving around with flat tires. 
I want to conclude, give you a few minutes for questions if we can have time. Hang in there. Let me share some words of Pope Francis from the joy of the gospel. I think it puts the challenges of the disciple way of life in a proper perspective. He said this. The great danger in today's world, and I talked about this earlier, pervaded as it is by consumerism, is the desolation and the anguish. We see our world is desolate and anguished. It's the desolation and anguish born of a complacent yet covetous heart. The fevers pursuit of frivolous pleasures and a blunted conscience. Whenever our interior life becomes caught up in its own interests and concerns, there is no longer room for others. There's no place for the poor. God's voice is no longer heard. The quiet joy of his love is no longer felt and the desire to do good fades. This is a very real danger for believers too, he says. Many fall prey to it and end up resentful, angry, and listless. This, that is no way to live a dignified and fulfilled life. It is not God's will for us, nor does the life in the spirit, which has its source in the heart of the risen Christ. So what does he say? And this is an invitation to all of us. He said, I invite all Christians everywhere at this very moment to a renewed personal encounter with Jesus Christ, or at least an openness to letting him counter them. He says, I ask all of you to do this unfailingly each day. No one should think that this invitation is not meant for him or her, since no one is excluded from the joy brought by the Lord. So I ask you, is your heart filled with that joy? He said, thanks solely to this encounter or renewed encounter with God's love, which blossoms, it's beautiful, blossoms into an enriching friendship. Thanks to that, we are liberated. How many of us want to be liberated? Like 10 people, that's it? <laughs> really? We are liberated from our narrowness and self-absorption. We become fully human, right? We're talking about human, fully human. Reclaiming our true identity. We become fully human when we become more than human. When we let God, let God bring us beyond ourselves in order to attain the fullest truth of our being. Here we find the source and inspiration of all of our efforts at evangelization. If we have received the love which restores the meaning of our lives, how can we fail to share that love with others? How about that? We will then be on the way to the restoration of our true self, our true identity, and then be led into a lively faith and faithful discipleship. So Jesus came to claim our hearts. In fact, Jesus came to reclaim your heart and my heart and to restore us as true stewards, to restore our original spirituality within us, united with him. You and I are called to leave here today and go out and be 11 in the world, in this diocese, to be the soul of society, to be the living presence of Jesus in our world. But in order to do this, one must see him or herself as an icon of God. 
If you and I are created in God's image and likeness, and that's what our Catholic faith teaches us, right? Then we have created, we have been created to be an icon of God. Now, is that how you see yourself? An icon of God? Huh? Then desire it. Jesus, we believe that we have been created an icon of God. So Jesus, we desire, all of us, that you show that to us in a new way. I want to see, Lord Jesus, this icon clearly that you created so that I can live it and be this living presence in the world. You know, so often we define ourselves or we're defined by what we do, right? By our role, by our function, you know. When you get in a conversation, I invite you to say to someone today when you leave here, John or Mary or whoever it is, do you realize that you're an icon of God? That's good. Then you can explain it. You begin the conversation. Doesn't matter. A lot of people laughed at him too. It didn't stop him. Right? But if we want to ignite the hearts of other people, you know, we have 100,000 Catholics in this diocese. There's 400 people here. How many are going to see what I've shared this these days today? Not many in comparison to a very small percentage. So it's up to you to take the good news out to them. But ask them, do you realize that you're an icon of God? And tell them what that means. They won't know because most people don't know what an icon is. <laughs> but maybe you don't know what an icon is. Maybe I should explain that. Um, but it will throw someone for a loop, for sure. And we're not perfect icons, right? Because I'm not perfect. But the more I engage this encounter in this relationship with Jesus, the more I become divinized. In other words, the more his divinity comes out. You know, as the gospel said yesterday, you know, we want, to, we want outward appearance to match our inward disposition, right? Instead of being fake, right? And as we grow in intimacy with the Lord, what happens is that we begin to discover who we really are. And our identity, true identity begins to emerge as an icon, and an icon of Christ begins to appear. This is what happens as we respond to Jesus in this intimate conversation. This intimate being with Jesus we call prayer. Not about saying prayers. Quit saying prayers and start praying. Because what happens in prayer is that we discover who we are, really are, our last. Let me give you one last story. You know, this, it's kind of a true story, I think. Um, it's a beautiful story in the book called Climbing in Rome. It was written by Father Henry Nouwen. Um, and it's about a young boy and a sculptor. Okay, so this young boy is walking through the streets of the city of Rome, right? And he passes a sculptor's studio. Right, one day, it's on one of these side streets in the city. I don't know if you've ever been to Rome, but they're everywhere. He looked in the front window of this shop and saw the sculptor in there with a chisel and hammer chiseling on a large piece of marble. A large piece of marble that was sitting in the middle of the floor, right? All he could see was these large and small pieces falling away, left and right. He wasn't really sure what was happening. 
but he didn't go in. When he returned, the boy returned to the studio a few weeks later. <laughs> Much to his surprise, he saw this big, large, powerful lion sitting where that piece of marble was. Right? So he goes into the store, into the shop, the sculpture studio, and with great excitement, he said, Sir, tell me, how did you know there was a lion in that marble? <laughs> how did you know there was a lion in the marble? And you want the sculptor son? I knew there was a lion in the marble because I saw the lion in the marble first in my heart. In the mind of the sculptor, all he had to do was chip away everything that wasn't the lion and to let the lion emerge. Right? The presence of Christ is within each of us through baptism. And you or I are meant to be the very icon of Jesus. So we have to let God chip away all that is not us. So our true selves can emerge. Because our true selves are in the mind of God and in the hearts of God. And when we let God begin to chip away all that is not us, then we will discover and see who we really are. And we will discover and experience God's love in ways that we've never experienced before. You know, so one last thing. In, the book, in Henry Nouwen's book called In the Name of Jesus, Reflection on Christian Leadership, he wrote, he wrote that at the heart of any Christian leadership, and I would say at the heart of any serious Christian, is, quote, an ardent desire an ardent desire to dwell in God's presence, to listen to God's voice, to look at God's beauty, to touch God's incarnate word, and to taste God, and to taste fully God's infinite goodness. You know, this was what Adam and Eve were invited to in the garden, to which they ultimately rejected, sadly to dwell in God's presence, to listen to God's voice, to look at God's beauty, to touch God's incarnate word, to taste fully God's infinite goodness is inherent for all Christians, whether we know it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we practice it or not. It is how God has created each and every one of you. It is the greatest desire that God has placed in your hearts, whether we have discovered it or not. This desire must come alive in each one of us because from this place is where comes our true mission. So desire it, ask for it, pray for it, beg for it, and surrender to it. Amen? Thank you. Do I have time for one question? <laughs>
We have six minutes. That's it. I'm, a, I'm an on time kind of guy, you know? question you talked about our children who are leaving the Catholic Church. Um, what are your thoughts about our children who have found Jesus in another Christian church where you see your children practicing their faith and see your grandchildren running to church and not being bored with church? I would say um, two things on that. One, I would just be grateful they're going to church because they're seeking some kind of a relationship with the Lord. But I would also, um, I think that's a good thing. Obviously, we would all like to see them running to the Catholic Church, right? But as you spend time with them... Um, You know, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge because oftentimes our parishes are not lively like the churches are going to. And that's our own fault, right? Um, I believe. Um, but also, you know, um, a lot of people leave the church because, well, they're for a lot of reasons, but I think one of the reasons that they don't know is they don't understand the Eucharist. You know, there's a quote that says, if people really understood the Eucharist, they would never leave the church because their heart wouldn't let them. And so we've done a poor job about forming our kids about the meaning of the sacraments. As I said, we give them information and no formation. Um, all you can do, um, obviously if they're not our kids, if they're, if your, grand, if they're your grandkids, they're not your kids, <laughs> as much as you would like them, but you can still talk to them and, and share the Catholic faith with them, you know, and it doesn't hurt anything. And, um, you know, it's so hopefully some, some day and in some way the Lord will lead them back to the true church, you know. And we, um, we don't want to beat people over the head because that pushes them further away. We want to love them where they are. That's the, that's the key thing. You know, Jesus kept inviting them into a deeper relationship with them. Jesus kept inviting people to follow him. He didn't beat people over the head. He challenged them, especially the, the, the leaders of the day, um, but he didn't beat them up. You know, he said, I came so you may have life. You know, um, He said, I didn't come to condemn the world, I came to save it. And the only way the world is saved is through love. But it's a complicated thing because you're dealing with other people. You know? But you love them and you continue to talk to them about Jesus. Talk to them about what Jesus, what we have in the Catholic Church is Jesus and the Eucharist. What that means, what that looks like, what that's all about. That most people don't understand. You know, 70% of the people don't believe in the real presence. And people that leave is because they don't believe in the real presence. You know, so somehow we have to get that message out. That beautiful truth. And um, but in the meantime, we just keep loving them, encouraging them. At least they're doing something. At least they're in, they're in some church, Christian church, right? It's not the greatest, but it's better than nothing at all, right? <laughs> Seriously, you know? You know, one of the things that we, we want to, like, solve all of this stuff, right? Oh, it'd be great to have a, like, tell me what to do about this. I don't know what to do about this, you know? 
but God does. And so we place it in the, in the heart of the Father and let him take care of it. You know, we continue to pray and do what we can to be good, intentional, loving disciples, um, people on fire. We continue to pray for these types of situations. And, you know, God knows our hearts, right? He knows that desire regarding that. We place that desire in his heart. And then we have to surrender to it because we don't have control over other people. All we can do is ourselves go out and be the good news of the Catholic faith to others, the good news of Jesus. That's all we can do. Be the instrument, right? Be the pencil in the hand of God, if you will. That's all we can do, you know? And it's, it's God's church, it's, it's God's people. Um, and we're, we're called to love, not judge. We're called to love. And love will bring them back because it's his love. Amen? Amen. So, no, ang- no anxieties, no burdens. Don't be a Martha. Right? Be a Mary. Bring it all to the Lord. Right? You want to be a Martha, but not with Martha's attitude. <laughs> right? right? You want to be the elder son, but not with his attitude. Right? When it was, it's got to be relationship, identity, and mission. Then, but, but we have to do it. We have to get up off our rear ends and go out and convert people or be the instrument of conversion for others. It's your job. It's part of your mission. Right? You know the mission statement of the diocese? Huh? It was given to you. Let's pray it together. Trusting in the Holy Spirit and nourished by the Eucharist, we, the faithful of the Diocese of Saginaw, are companions on the journey to share the love of Christ. Christ. Amen. Amen. Go in peace and do it. <laughs>